0: Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for this time together. Lord, we just pray you'd open up your word to us. Give us understanding in our minds. Lord, let our hearts receive your word and rejoice, God, that you change us, Lord, from the inside out, Lord. I pray that none of us would leave this building the same we entered in. But, God, we would look more and more like your son, Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, we just ask that you'd... um, just give interpretation and application to your word, and uh, Lord, we just want to glorify you in all that we do. So we pray now you'd open up this wonderful prophecy to us in Jesus' name, Amen. Now, last week uh, I was I was under jet lag, uh, so I feel a lot better this week. Uh, and so last week, just to, in case I I. Was too confusing for you last week. Last week was chapter 17, and and if you remember, chapter 16 was those seven bowls being poured out of wrath and judgment, and really chapter 19 follows chapter 16 uh, with Jesus coming back. And I was actually hoping when I originally planned out Revelation uh, months ago, I was hoping to be on chapter 19 on Palm Sunday because you have the triumphal entry of Christ. To Jerusalem, And, of course, that wasn't the entry that the Jews wanted. The Jews wanted to see Christ kick out the Romans and, and institute the Messianic kingdom. But that's not what he did. Instead, he conquered sin on that cross for you and me. And, uh, of course, now in Revelation 19, we're going to see his second coming. That was the Messianic. That's the institution of the Messianic reign and the, 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 the coming the Jews originally wanted before they rejected him and uh, so I was hoping to be there but we're not quite there yet so we got to hold on but revelation 16 we had the bulls the last bowls of judgment being poured out and then 17 and 18 are kind of helping to put these two two groups this more history into the tribulation period of course last week we had the the prostitute on the, riding on the beast babylon mystery babylon and her destruction and if you remember she's actually destroyed by the ten kings and the beast that she rides in on, the Antichrist. We, we, last week we said that she's probably helps enter into the Great Tribulation. There's a, a, a world religion that kind of comes up, and it's a, it's a uh, fake Christianity. Uh, we talked about some of the symbolism there. But she's paving the way for the Antichrist to establish himself and his own religion during in the mid-year of the Tribulation. And if you remember when we talked about Revelation 13, the beast... The Antichrist is going to demand worship of himself. And then he's going to, anybody who doesn't worship him will be beheaded and uh, martyred uh, for the sake of the cross. So that's where we were at last week with 17. The Antichrist replaces that ecclesiastical Babylon, mystery Babylon. Today, chapter 18, we're at the fall of the commercial Babylon or the political Babylon. So I I, uh, can't help but think of this nursery rhyme from when I was a kid. Uh, Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. And that's what we're going to see here with the destruction of Babylon. We're going to see that there's nothing that's going to restore this or put it back together. God has finished with it and he's, he's going to judge it. So let's read the first uh, eight verses here. Or first three. Let's go to that. After this I saw another angel coming down from heaven Having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory, and he called out with a mighty voice Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich. From the power of her luxurious living, so the first part of this chapter is broken up into a proclamation of judgment. Then we're going to see an admonition for of God's people to get out of Babylon. Then we'll see a lamentation over Babylon's destructions from its merchants, and lastly we'll we'll see a celebration in heaven in this chapter. This first part, though, I want to key in on the very first couple words of this. After this, it's talking about chapter seventeen, and if you remember. In John's prophetic vision, in the vision that Jesus Christ is giving to John, he saw the bowls of wrath being poured out. He's seen the trumpet judgments. He's seen all these things. And then the angel, one of the angels who poured out the bowl, the bowls comes over to him and says, I'll show you this. And he shows him mystery Babylon. And then now another angel, and this, the word another means another of the same kind, comes to John and said, now I'm going to show you this other, this other destruction having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory, this wonderful contrast to an angel of God, a holy one, and and, uh, those who are on the earth. Now notice it says, fallen, fallen, is Babylon the great. It's interesting because there's a sense here that this has already happened, but we know that the, the text is telling us that it's going to happen. But the word... Fallen is not in a past tense. It's actually in the Greek. It's what we call the aorist tense, and aorist tense are one of the words that that are always tough because you'd love to read into a word, but when you when you do your study in Greek, you go, oh no, aorist just means there's really no time to it. So the the translators say fallen, fallen, showing that this is as good as done. It's just God hasn't done it yet. So it's coming, but but it's not quite done yet. And and I want to. Differentiate the two Babylons, because I, I think it's really important. It, it's it, it's tempting to say that chapter 17 and chapter 18 are speaking about the same Babylon, but this Babylon in chapter 18 has a has some differences. I mean, there are some similarities here. Some of the similarities um, are that uh, we see that. Oh, I'm sorry, I lost my place here. Uh, some of the similarities, obviously, we have the name in chapter 17, but but the difference is is the chapter 17 Babylon it says mystery, if you remember. It's Babylon the great mystery, and it speaks about her in a religious aspect. So we're not talking about just a city. We're talking about a whole worldview. And in and part of that worldview, we have the ecclesiastical or church religion, and we have the political and the power and the commercialism. And of course, in chapter 18, it refers to it more times as a city and less times as, as a, a religious system. Remember in chapter 17, she's referred to as the mother of all harlots, where in chapter 18, it's referred to as Babylon the Great. But here we're told, this proclamation of judgment, that fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. It's as good as done. God has decreed it. It's going to happen and notice who's living there. Notice who's taking up residence in Babylon. It's the dwelling place of demons. And, and, and the, it's going to uh, continue to reinforce this, the haunt of every unclean spirit, the haunt of every unclean bird, a haunt of every unclean and detestable beast. What it's telling us is that Babylon has become the place of evil. Now, we know that evil always has its source, and that source is in Satan. Jesus tells us he's the father of lies, the devil. But Babylon has become a place that has accepted all this evil. It has set itself up against God and it values everything that God does not value. And I, I think uh, there's a wonderful application in this passage and we'll look at it more and more. And that's the, that application is, are you and I choosing to set up our tents, make our living places in Babylon? Or are we coming out of Babylon? Are we we moving out of Babylon as sojourners of the cross? Are we following Jesus Christ? Or are we getting comfortable in Babylon? And I I do want to encourage you as we go through this chapter to think about Psalm 1. Are you all familiar with Psalm 1? Well, let me just turn there real fast. And you can turn there too in your Bibles. Psalm chapter 1. And we'll just look at that first two verses there. Psalm chapter 1. Let's see, there's chapter 5, chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Psalm one, one and two has a this progression. The first is is what it's walking in the counsel of the wicked, hearing the counsel of the wicked, listening to them, versus saying I want nothing to do with your counsel. Then, then the second progression is now you're standing in the way of sinners. You, you, you've 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 moved from listening to the sinners to hanging out with the sinners. Or those who are, and when we say sinners, we're talking about rebellious. And by the way, we're not saying that you shouldn't have nothing to do with sinners as far as sharing the gospel with them and reaching out to them. Obviously, we know that's a calling. It's part of the Great Commission. God has told us to do it. But this is taking up residence. This is living. This is engaging in what they're doing. So we go from walking in the counsel of the wicked to standing in the way of sinners and then to sitting in the seat of scoffers. And I think there's a wonderful imagery in the Old Testament of this. If you remember Lot, Lot's with Abraham, and they're looking over the plains, and Abraham says, look, your guys are fighting with my guys. We're just growing too big to be together. You tell me which way you're going to go, and I'll go the opposite way. And Lot looks out there, and he sees, he's looking out there, and he sees like, The land is good over here. And he says, you know what, I want to go that way. And he looks over the plain of of Sodom and Gomorrah, those cities of the plain. And he says, I'm going that way. And later on, we find out that Lot is no longer uh, just wandering around, but he's actually set up a tent outside the city. And he's got a tent there. And then later on, we find out that Lot's got a house inside the city. He's moved from that tent, he's moved from walking around the cities to a tent outside the city to inside the city. And we see God say, Lot, it's time to go. Get out. And, of course, he calls them. So I want you to just consider that as we go through this passage because I think it's a wonderful application. Notice in verse 3, it says, for all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of our sexual immorality. What a great description. You know, when we stay drunk, we don't think clearly. When we get drunk, we lose our sharpness, our ability to discern truth from error, and and here they're just drunk on Babylon. Francis Schaeffer, the um, philosopher and uh, and writer who started up the Labrie Ministry, he uh, wrote in his his book, "How How Shall We uh, How Then Shall We Now How Then Shall We Live?" I always get the title messed up. If you haven't read it, it's a, it's a it's a good book, and it'll really make you think. But one of the things he does is he looks back at history and he looks at the fall of the Roman Empire and and Christendom from Rome on and why Christianity has survived but these empires come and go. And one of the things he talks about is America. And he says America eventually, and this was in the, I think, 60s, might, might have been 70s, but America will eventually trade its freedom for for uh, personal peace and affluence, it's going to look more to the individual, versus and its own riches and its own materialistic wealth, than look to its freedom. And man, it, I, I think I've read that read the book originally around ten years ago, and boy, have I! That book opened up my eyes because I keep seeing things happening where we keep trading liberty for personal peace and affluence how it makes me feel, and how comfortable I am during it. Patrick Henry actually stated, or uh, Vance Havner, a, a chaplain in the United States Senate, said this. He said, there's a difference, a great difference between Patrick Henry and the average American living today. Patrick Henry said, give me liberty or give me death, while the average American today just says, give me. Man, that's so true. And I want to tell you that this chapter is also going to challenge you to have a light touch on the things of this world. Hold them loosely. Because you're not to store up your treasures here on earth, but in heaven, Jesus told us. So, the nations have become drunk on her passion of her sexual immorality. The kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. The merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of luxurious living. Notice, too, remember in chapter 17, the ten kings set up an alliance against Mystery Babylon, the religion, and they overthrew her. And this one, you see that the kings are enchanted by Babylon, the great city, their their power and their wealth. Something's going to happen within the Great Tribulation where the Antichrist is going to establish some sort of economic power. We're going to see him pull, pull something out of ashes And establish a a wonderful world economic system, so much so that in order to buy or sell, you're going to have to take a mark. And that mark is going to, but people are going to love it, because we're going to see wealth like they've never seen before at first. But notice, let's look at the admonition of God's people during this time, and and I think we can apply it to our time too, But we know that there's going to be, after the rapture, there's going to be a great revival. We know people are going to come in droves to Christ. We know 144,000 Jews are going to accept Christ. We know more people are going to accept Christ because there's lots of martyrs. Verse 4 says, Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for for her in a cup she mixed, as she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. This second part of the chapter is an admonition to God's people to leave. Get out. Come out of her. <laughs> Don't look back. Don't look back, Lot. You come out. You know, every time God calls his people out of the world or situation, it's for their good. It's to save. It's not, it's, it's to, to skirt judgment. Think about it. Abraham was called out of Ur. Remember Babylon? Uh, Babylon, uh, the whole Ur, where, where, uh, Ur of the Chaldeans where Lot or Abraham comes out of his city. It's, it's all part of the Babylonian kingdom there. And God speaks to Abraham and says, all right, Abraham, get out. It's time to leave your family, leave your people's gods, leave them behind. You're going to follow me to land I will show you. So he calls Abraham out. And what came with that was a blessing. Abraham, I'm going to bless you. And all peoples on earth are going to be blessed through you. And Anyone who curses you will be cursed. Because God, when he calls us out, he's always going to bless. That's what he does. He calls us out to save. Not not to destroy. He calls us out of the destruction. (laughs) Think about uh, Lot being called out of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then, of course, Israel being called out of Egypt. All right. Everybody... Get ready, you're going to kill a lamb tonight. You're going to eat unleavened bread. And when you sit and you eat this meal, this Passover meal, because the angel of death will be passing over Egypt, and anyone's house who doesn't have the lamb's blood put above the doorpost will suffer the loss of their firstborn. And you're going to, when you eat this meal, you're going to eat packed up, ready to go with your loins girded, your, your, your gown tied up, whatever, however they did it, I don't know. Um, basically eat with your clothes on, don't get in your pajamas. Okay, (laughs) you know, stay ready. Um, And and you're going to eat this and be ready to go because tonight I am delivering you from Egypt. And don't go back. Don't go back to Egypt. And, of course, we have God calling his people out of Babylon itself because Babylon soon gets judgment. Come out of her. Lest you share in her sins, part, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. Again, look at Psalm one. You hang out in the council of the wicked. You you walk in the council of the wicked. You stand in the seat of, or in the way of sinners, and you sit in the seat of scoffers. Listen, if you hang out in the world, you're going to start looking like the world. If you hang out with Jesus, you're going to start looking like Jesus. Are you a sojourner of the cross? Are you a wanderer looking for a, a, a city whose builder is God? Or are you looking to set up camp within this world? God doesn't want us to hate the world as far as the earth. I want to make sure we're clear on that when I use this term. The world as far as the earth. In fact, I think Christians could are, are probably can love the world more as far as the earth goes and the trees and the sky and all this sort of stuff, more so than anybody else because we understand who created it and we recognize what it was created for. But we're talking about a system that sets itself up against God, a system that is determined to lead people astray from God, a system that wants to lead you right into hell. Now, it goes on to say, For our sins are heaped high as heaven. And God has remembered her iniquities. Look at verse 6. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others. And repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion in her cup, uh, in the cup she had mixed. Now, the word pay is apodidomi. And um, this word is, is a, a, what it means is it's an imperative. And, and it's, a, it's, it's a command to pay her back. But, it, but it, the idea is that it's something owed. You're paying back something owed. You're, you're, okay, this is what, this is a, a wage you earn. I'm paying it back to you. Or, or this is what I owe you in a contractual agreement. Here you go. It reminds me of, Jesus, of Paul saying, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. See, the wages we earn, the paycheck at the end of the day for sin is death and judgment. But the gift of God, that's eternal life in Christ Jesus. And so all all the angels are saying is, okay, it's time to pay her back. This is what she's earned. This is what she's owed. She's owed judgment and retribution. And remember, Babylon is not a good place for the saints, for sure. They hate God's people. They're putting God's people to death in their worship of the Antichrist. And God's saying, enough, it's time to pay back, give back what is due Jesus also used this word, apodidomi. It comes out in, uh, when he talks about judgment. He talks about each one will be rewarded for the things said in secret and done in secret. Uh, it's the same word. This is, this is the reward. This is what's paid back, is, what, what is due. I'm giving it back to you. And uh, so I don't want you to think that God is some unjust God. In fact, God is very just. God will never, never default on a loan. God will never pay his debts. In fact, God will always pay whatever is owed. He'll give to to each person what is deserved. God doesn't ever forget about anything. So you don't have to worry about that, even when it comes down to judgment. Have you thought about that? Have you thought about your life and what you owe? I wonder. Have you thought about what you've earned and, and a lot of people approach life with this idea that maybe my good can outweigh my bad. When, when you put it on the scales, maybe it will outweigh the good or bad. Last time, uh, when uh, Art and I were in Nepal, we were walking uh, down the street, and you know, I saw the greatest bike ever in the world. And it was this guy's bike, and it was outfitted with a bunch of fruit on the back. And then on the front of it, he had this, like, welded system with, with a set of scales and he could measure out all the the fruit and stuff with weights. And, and I couldn't help but think of these scales and thinking about like, well, what, what would my scale look like in front of God? Well, by myself, it looks pretty bad. Because that sin, that weight of sin, the weight of the evil I have done is much too much. I can never outweigh that. Because it's put me as a lawbreaker. It's put me as an enemy of God. But of course when I add Jesus Christ into this, when I recognize what Jesus Christ has done for me, when, I, when I, I put the cross there on the scale, it tips it over in my favor. It cleanses me from my sin. So what are you going to be paid back for? Well, hopefully if you're in Jesus Christ, you've been given that, that account that is unending. Man, God, Jesus has paid all of your debt versus God paying you with judgment. Trust in Jesus Christ. That's why he came. That's why he died for you. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Notice she says, I sit as a queen. I am no widow. And mourning I shall never see. Man, as people live in their luxurious lives, they don't foresee any type of judgment. They just continue thinking that this is going to go on forever. Oh, I'll just continue being rich. That sure isn't the way it worked in 2007. Man, 2007 was a shock to our economic world. Some people said, hey, we see this thing coming. Don't, don't do not do so. Some of you probably lost money during 2007 and, and were grieved by the sins of others. But it's easy to, when things are going well, when wealth is abundant, when we have everything we think we have, that we can just go on saying, Oh, yeah, there's no worry about judgment. But I'll tell you, money problems affect us like no other. I mean, when you think about it, when money is good, where are we at? Everything's great. I can buy all my toys. I can pay all my bills. Man, everything's great. You know, our, I wonder what our prayer life is like when money is abundant. But then when money's, when money's lean, when it's hard to find money, when it's hard to pay the bills, we have trouble sleeping at night. Depression soars. We see pills, uh, people trying to buy pills, and they're they're constantly upset. There's no peace within them because they don't have enough money. When you ask people sometimes, "How's it going?" Well, I'm thinking about robbing a bank this week. I've I've had people say that to me before. Like that's going to solve the problem. More money, Christians. When are you going to realize money comes and goes? You're supposed to live for the Lord. Not to acquire lots of wealth here on this earth. Not to build up your bank account. And I'm not telling you to be foolish. Pay your bills. Take care of those things. But don't make money about your 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 physical and emotional and spiritual health. This is the source for our health. Not my wallet. When I open up my wallet, it's like, hello, hello, hello. <laughs> Anyone in there? there? <laughs> no. It's like some people uh, challenge this passage. By the way, um, in chapter uh, about it being Babylon, because there's a prophecy in Isaiah 13:19. It says this: "And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans, will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. It will never be inhabited or lived in for all generations." So Isaiah 13:19 through 20 says that. And a lot of times people confuse the overthrow of Babylon with the destruction of Babylon in the Old Testament. And I want to make a, a clear thing here. 539 B.C., Babylon was overthrown by Cyrus the Persian. If you remember, uh, Belshazzar was having a party. The city was under siege, but he thought, hey, there's, there's no chance of, of Cyrus getting in here. Let's just celebrate. Let's party. And, um, and Cyrus, meanwhile, was damming up the river and uh, diverting the river, other places, to, to, to get into this impregnable city. And Belshazzar was drinking his way, drinking away his sorrow. So he was <laughs> drunk out of his mind. And, of course, that's when we have that in Daniel chapter 5, that vision of the finger writing on the wall, mene, and, mene, tekel Upharsin, And Belshazzar saying, what? And am, am I stoned here or is this, like, what am I seeing and uh, so they call in Daniel, and Daniel said, well, the good news is I can read it. <laughs> That's the good news. Do you, <laughs> do you, how, how do you want me to tell you the rest? Well, just tell it to us. And he says, well, it says your days are numbered. In fact, it actually says that God has found, put you in the balance and found you wanting. And uh, this, this very night, your kingdom is going to be divided. And sure enough, within that hour, we see Cyrus the Persian and his armies come underneath the city gate. They waded through the water into the city of Babylon and overthrew the Babylonian leadership and took it over. In Isaiah 13, it's a reference to the day of the Lord. And if you remember when we started Revelation, we, we made a big distinction about that term day of the Lord. Isaiah 13 this prophecy is actually a prophecy of what's happening here in Revelation 18. That God is going to destroy utterly Babylon. And it will cease to be, exist no more. So let's get into this lamentation in verses 9 through 19. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality... And lived in luxury with her, will weep and well over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their cargo anymore cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep and horses and chariots and slaves, that is, human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares, Who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls, for in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. And all shipments and seafaring men, sailors, and all whose trade is on the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning." What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads and they wept and mourned, crying out. Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she has been laid waste. Now, it's it's been questioned whether or not this is a just a world system or an actual city. And I tend to think there's going to be an actual city, an actual place that is, that is the source called Babylon that all the rest of the world will be feeding off of. And the reason why is it talks about the, the shipmasters and the sea. It talks about all these, these uh, commodities that are being traded and coming out from her. I, I mean, it seems like it will be the source of all the wealth in the world and everybody will be profiting off of Babylon, the great city. It will be the source of the income for the Antichrist, that's for sure. And, and what we see, though, sadly, is as it lists these commodities, we also see human souls listed in that. And that this could be slaves of any kind. Maybe it's those who refuse to take the mark of the beast. Maybe it's Christian saints. But I think that, uh, that during the tribulation period, we see that more often than not, they're martyred, not sold into slavery. So we're going to see this resurgence in slavery being accepted But what the sad part is about this this lament is do you see that they're lamenting the loss of their wealth, not their sin? They're lamenting the loss of their comforts and their wealth, not their sin. Listen, if God has taken away wealth from you and you've gotten on your knees and you've drawn closer to him, that's a, that's a good attitude to have. Sometimes it's because of sin. Sometimes it's just because God chose to take away. He gives and he takes. And we recognize that. But certainly don't lament the loss. There's a man in our church who I've witnessed lose everything. And he's, he's a good man. He's actually an elder on our elder board. And I've, I've seen him make bad investments. And, and because of that, he lost everything. But seeing the way he responded to the loss of his wealth. Was incredible, and I don't mean that. That, that you know, I'm sure he would go. Well, it still hurt, <laughs> you know, because obviously it hurt him. And anybody who knows him really well knows it hurt him bad, uh, because obviously, it, you know, he had to deal with all this loss. But what I saw was in him still zeal for the, his zeal for the Lord. I saw him look to the Lord even more. I saw him look to ways that he could serve the Lord even more. I saw him just continue. I actually saw him try to figure out a way to keep certain things simply because the church used those things. And the church, he he wanted to allow those things to still be used for ministry. So I saw him figure out ways that he could keep those things, even though he was losing his house and everything else. He lamented. Uh, he was. He said, "Okay, Lord, you take. I'm giving it to you. That's fine. I'm going to worship you." Sadly, though, here in Babylon, they don't lament for sin like they should. They lament for their loss of wealth, and they are wealthy. They are so very wealthy, and here they are just looking to their, looking to their their things. First John, chapter two says, "Do not love the world or anything of the world." <laughs> don't love the world. That's not where the Christians' love and devotion is supposed to be put towards. Not the, the ideas of this world or the things of this world, not to the wealth of this world. We're supposed to love God. Proverbs eleven four says, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Isn't that true? Have you figured out what's gonna happen? How are you gonna take your riches past the grave? It's impossible. So what are you working towards? Building God's kingdom? Looking forward to his kingdom? Are you looking to amass your riches? Now, if you're really, if if you're really poor and just starting out your marriage, uh, you're like, "Cool, this is a great message. I love it." <laughs> but, uh, but I, I just want to ask you, what what is your love? You know, is it for the riches or is it for the 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 wealth and the comfort? Don't be afraid to be uncomfortable, because you know what? I, I'd rather go before the Lord and have been. <laughs> without, because it seems like one of those things where if you live for yourself, when you die, you die by yourself. And, and, and at the end of your days, you're going to be thinking that, man, I could have done more. I could have done something else. But, but it seems like if you live for Christ, there's nothing you regret. And not to mention that you receive all eternity because I've been living for Christ. So something to challenge you with. All right, let's look at uh, verses 20 through 24. Rejoice. Over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Notice the judgment is for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon the great be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of the bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. Interesting how the world laments for its loss of wealth and heaven rejoices for God's judgment. Now, I know you and I have a hard time sometimes looking at judgment, but I want you to realize, and I've said this over and over throughout the book of Revelation, that when God judges, the saints are going, oh, that was a good judgment. Man, that was really wise. I I didn't think I'd see it that way, but wow, that was really awesome, God. Listen, the, the people that have a, Heavy grip on the world and the things of this world, man, you're you're you're, you're torn. You're like, I don't, know, I don't want to see any judgment. Those who have a loose grip on the world, a loose touch on the world, and are living for Christ's kingdom, they see the injustice of the world. They see the people that just take from the poor. They see the what's going on in this world, and they go, Lord, when are you going to judge? How long, oh, Lord, until you you? pay back this evil until you establish your kingdom where we can actually see fairness and justice and see your reign. Heaven rejoices at the celebration. Notice that there won't be a single sound in Babylon anymore. Not a single light, but it will be utterly destroyed. I uh, read the story of Yusuf Ismail, the terrible Turk. In the 1890s, he uh, was a, became a world-renowned wrestler and uh, he, he uh, was a huge man, weighing in, or uh, measuring in at six foot two, two 250 pounds. That was huge in, in the 1890s. And uh, he was known for his American Heavyweight Championship in Chicago versus Evan the Strangler Brooks, I mean Lewis. Evan the Strangler Lewis. <laughs> if you don't know Evan, Evan Brooks is our, uh, our bassist. And if you see Evan, you're like, okay, it's, 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 <laughs> he's very thin. So uh, Evan the Strangler Lewis was, uh, that, that, by the way, that's a good name. And Evan Brooks, I think you should start going by the name Evan the Strangler. No, wait, hold on. Might be mistaken for a, a serial killer. Don't do that. So anyway, he faced off, uh, the, uh, Yusuf the Terrible Turk faced off about him, and he, won a, he, he easily won this match by his massive size and strength. He, uh, he managed to uh, use the sleeper hold during the match and uh, i I just was laughing because i couldn 't think of help but think of like professional wrestling today, which is all fake and you know how over exaggerated everything is, but here they actually like use sleeper holds and uh, But he refused to be paid in any type of cash. he wanted all gold for his prize, so he got five thousand dollars in in coin, and of course, he fought a couple other matches while he was in the u s so uh, shortly after his victory, he left to go back to Europe, and his goal was to set up a little Coffee bazaar in Europe, and that was his his kind of in retirement plan and goal. So he leaves with a good some good seed money. They say that he probably had a money belt full of eight to ten thousand dollars in gold nuggets and coin. And uh, he left with his money belt around his waist. Got on the ship. Unfortunately, the SS uh, uh sunk. It uh, it six hundred passengers drowned, and and uh, it was reported that. The terrible Turk could not swim. He fell overboard during the thing, but his gold money belt just weighted him down and nobody could save him in time and he couldn't get the, because of the weight of his belt, he just sunk to the bottom of the sea and died there, never getting to spend his prize money. I don't think there's a better illustration for what are you holding on to. Are you holding on to the world's wealth that will ultimately just sink you? Or are you looking to God's kingdom? Storing up for yourselves treasures in heaven, just like Jesus said. Second Peter gives you I want to leave you with this challenge from Second Peter chapter three. If you'll turn there with me, Second Peter chapter three. Let's just go to Second Peter chapter three. <clears throat> and verse ten. Peter says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. And, of course, this is what we've been reading in Revelation. Verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. That's the question. Knowing that all of these things are going to be just burned away, knowing that the only thing left will be our works exposed, what sort of people ought you to be in holiness and godliness? What sort of people ought you to be? Lord willing, it's one who looks like Christ. I'll tell you right now, if you model your life after Christ, you will have nothing to regret. It's The problem is, is when you get involved. <laughs> when you start modeling your life after the counsel of the wicked or those who are sinners or those who are scoffers, what sort of people ought you to be knowing that this day is coming? That's the challenge. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your words. We thank you for this wonderful revelation given to us of things to come. God, I just pray that you'd help us to have a light touch on the things of this world. Live for you, sold out, loving your word, committed to it, uncompromising. Lord Jesus, help us to be ambassadors of your great kingdom. And uh, Lord God, I just pray that if anyone in here does not know you, that they see themselves in that balance with their sins being weighed out, I pray that they turn to you. If, you, if you're if you in here tonight and you're that person that knows I need I need a Savior, I need to be forgiven of my sins, you just pray this prayer. Dear Jesus, come into my life. I receive what you did for me on that cross. I'm ready to follow you. Take my sin. Give me your righteousness. I need it. You pray that prayer. Lord Jesus, we want to be your servants. We thank you that you are the triumphant one. In Jesus' name, amen.